The following is an in-depth analysis. If you haven't seen this film, you might want to before watching this review. The Batman is a series that really struggled with its identity. And how could it not, coming off the heels of one of the most successful and critically acclaimed animated series of all time? It had huge boots to fill, and its opening strategy was trying to be something radically different from its predecessor. That seems smart in theory. If you're going to just try to do the same thing that came before you, what's the point of your existence in the first place? You might as well just keep Batman the Animated Series on the air. And frankly, I have a hard time imagining most viewers would have minded that. But the trouble is, the opposite of innovative, serious, intelligent, thought-provoking superhero detective crime drama is silly, over-the-top, brainless action with an emphasis on gadgetry rather than detective skills which often is what the Batman seemed to be, to me. And when it was on, I stopped watching after the first five or six episodes. And I get it. It's a show aimed at kids. But what I couldn't get my mind around is that so was the previous series, and it managed to really push the envelope of the kinds of stories it could tell while still being that. I thought the animation style was ugly. I didn't like that Bruce Wayne looked like Jackie Chan. Really, look at him. That's Jackie Chan. And most of all, I didn't like that so many villains seemed dumbed down and had their origins changed to something 12 times less interesting than what had been done with them before in the other series, just to distinguish itself, and not in a creative way. Mr. Freeze can't be a scientist anymore. That's been done, so we'll make him a jewel thief with no personality, and it'll be clever because diamonds are sometimes called ice, and those will power his suit. To be fair, it's been maybe eight years since I've seen that episode, but that's how I remember it. I've been told that the series gets better as it goes along, that it gets smarter and has a greater emphasis on telling good stories rather than just being a cartoon. But what's frustrating is that a Batman show can do both of those things if that's what it wants to be. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I think Batman Brave and the Bold pulled that off nicely. Yes, it's over the top, and it's intentionally campy, and it's filled with puns, and there's also some really clever and interesting stories told in that show. It knew it wanted to be a cartoon over an animated series, and it fully embraced that, whereas the Batman couldn't decide which it wanted to be more. So after the first season, here comes The Batman vs. Dracula, a movie I dismissed out of hand when I first heard about it because I just didn't care for what I saw the series. There's a featurette on the DVD that shows some of the voice work, and the voice director, Jenny McSwain, tells the actors that this movie is going to be played straight and the voices shouldn't be too cartoony, which is a huge departure from what they were used to. From the opening credits, I was shocked and dismayed at the macabre tone and atmosphere of this film. There's a real maturity here that what I saw of the series was lacking. I expected an underwhelming, kiddish story where maybe an underdeveloped and exaggerated character called Dracula, who doesn't really seem much like Dracula at all, fights Batman over and over, maybe teams up with some other villains, and Batman beats him because he has lots of cool toys in his Batcave. What I got was Dracula. A legitimate, as true to his roots as you could hope for, for a direct-to-video animated movie intended for kids. This movie pushes the horror line as far as it can without going over and trying to actually terrify kids. It's pretty impressive that for a vampire movie in which no one actually dies, there are scenes I found genuinely pretty chilling. I'm also impressed that with countless homages to the Hammer Dracula films, the derivative yet haunting score with those beautiful dark violin melodies you would expect in a Lon Chaney Dracula film, it manages to be more than just a Dracula movie that has Batman in it. Clearly, the producers of this movie had a lot of reverence for the mythology and history of Dracula, and their enthusiasm for that character shows all over it. In every frame, you can see the attitude of, hey, everybody, we get to do Dracula. But they have the same respect and enthusiasm 
enthusiasm for Batman, and it explores his character through a surprisingly intelligent deconstruction of the legend of Batman through the lens of Dracula. This is the last thing I expected. In confronting Dracula, we have a Batman whose character arc focuses on coming to terms with what he is as a larger-than-life figure, and who he is as a man who's made the choice to live as a creature of the night. The parallels between Batman and Dracula, intentional or more likely not, in its inception are hard to ignore. The movie hints at the intriguing notion that Dracula's lore has penetrated our culture over so many generations that he has affected ideas like Batman in an invisible, subconscious sort of way. Bruce Wayne certainly wasn't thinking of vampires when he chose to don the guise of a bat-themed Avenger, and yet he can't escape the influence Dracula has had over the ages. At one point, he completely surrenders to this idea, while mortified by the thought that he may be more like Dracula than he wants to admit, saying the more Batman tries to protect Gotham, the more it fears him, almost as if he were the son of Dracula. In many Batman stories, especially those where he's depicted as more of an urban legend than a public figure, you'll see citizens and criminals alike speculating that Batman is a vampire. The idea even crops up in Tim Burton's Batman, where Alexander Knox's colleagues are making fun of him for pursuing the rumor that Batman even exists, calling him Count Dracula, and one of them even draws a picture of him as a joke, which Bob Kane himself drew. It's fascinating that a character so heavily inspired by Zorro is so deeply connected and people's minds to a classically evil, monstrous character who kills and destroys to keep himself immortal. And it isn't just fictional characters in Batman stories that make this connection. There was a very popular Elseworlds story in 1991 which spawned two sequels called Batman and Dracula Red Rain, in which Batman is bitten by a vampire and has to destroy Dracula before he loses his humanity. Naturally, that story takes some of the ideas in this film a lot farther and almost certainly inspired some of the plotting, though this movie tells an original story, such as Batman luring Dracula into the Batcave at the end. Oddly, the idea of putting Batman and Dracula together was done long before that even, and on film, though not sanctioned by DC. An unreleased Andy Warhol film called Batman Dracula was made in 1964, which has been cited as the first screen depiction of an entirely campy Batman, and a Filipino film called Batman Fights Dracula just three years later. It's an inspired choice to do this story in the world of the Batman, because such a fantastic concept like Dracula is actually real and Batman has to fight him would have seemed out of place in Batman the Animated Series in a way it isn't here, and if you play it pretty straight without completely reinventing all the supporting characters, it'll be pretty bold and daring, or at least that was the impression it left on me. At a time when vampires were very much in vogue, and not much has changed since then beyond further and more severe defanging of them, it's refreshing to see another property use Dracula as a villain and not try to do their own clever reimagining, as so many other stories have tried. Sure, there are some tweaks to make him palatable to children, but he has hypnotic powers, he transforms into a bat, he sleeps in a coffin, and most importantly, he sucks blood. And that might be a given, but I was really shocked to see so much blood in this movie. I don't mean that it's especially graphic and that there's blood flying everywhere. I just mean that the vampires in this movie actually bite into people's necks and they suck their blood. We couldn't get that in Spider-Man, the animated series with Morbius. There's also a scene where the Joker, having been transformed into a vampire himself, raids a blood bank. And we actually see him lapping up blood as it's raining down on him from everywhere. 
That's pretty edgy for an American children's release, and I don't just like it for the shock factor. I like it because the vampires are real vampires, and also because blood is used as a very important story element. Confronting Dracula forces Bruce to take a hard look at the persona he's created and what it stands for. He begins to do that early on in the film before Dracula even surfaces. The Joker, who in this version is a laughing hyena with dreadlocks, escapes from Arkham Asylum along with the Penguin, both going after an alleged secret treasure buried inside a tomb in Gotham Cemetery, which is admittedly a somewhat weak premise to get the ball rolling, and naturally we aren't shown exactly how the bad guys escape, but the movie seems to be admitting that it doesn't have the strongest villains in its rogues gallery at the moment, and the generally somber mood, despite their inane one-liners, seems to suggest that if we just give it a chance, it'll take us somewhere interesting. Because this is a feature and the scope must be grander, this is the time Joker escapes from Arkham, despite having done it many times before, that Batman will fight him on a roof in the pouring rain, he'll fall off, electrocute himself with his own hand buzzer, and Batman will think he's dead. Again, convenient, but I like that it gives Batman a reason to start considering the larger implications of what he does with his evenings before those concerns will completely engulf him when he's faced with Dracula. Batman swore never to kill, and he feels responsible for the Joker's death. So later on, when the Joker turns out to still be alive but now is turned into a vampire, Batman has a very personal motivation in reversing the Joker's condition. In that first Elseworlds story, as it was Batman who was turned into a vampire, he had to literally try to hold on to his humanity. The story handles that figuratively. Having a hand in the Joker's near death represents the thin line Batman walks between being a creature that operates at night and uses darkness and a creature of darkness. And curing the Joker, and then by extension everyone else who's been turned into a vampire, is a form of redemption for Batman, a way to prove his humanity to himself, if no one else. When the Penguin unearths Dracula accidentally while looking for his treasure, Dracula hypnotizes him and makes him his sentinel, and then proceeds to find a way to resurrect his bride as well, while feeding on humans and starting a chain reaction that creates a number of vampires. When Dracula hears about Batman, he is instantly impressed with and shows respect for him. The more he finds out about Batman, the more Dracula sees him as a kindred spirit. We have the classic motif of the two sides of the same coin, of course. The hero and the villain who are alarmingly similar, yet have one profound difference that sets them apart and makes their goals entirely incompatible. This leads to Dracula inevitably asking Batman to join him, which is a familiar scene that only works if we buy that these two men really are so close in their personalities. It comes out of nowhere in the original Spider-Man film, for example, but here I buy it completely. And I found so much of Dracula's dialogue witty. After Batman refuses Dracula, he says things later like, I will be the only Batman in Gotham, and try as you may, you cannot out-bat me. Their parallels don't end simply in that they both have a bat motif. Many of Dracula's physical characterizations are bodied in Batman's psychologically, and so the movie plays him up as Dracula's human equal. Like a vampire, Batman was created out of a tragedy. This is an idea the movie doesn't spell out with dialogue, but Bruce flashes back to that moment in very specific instances whenever he seems to question if he is simply a monster as Dracula is. The idea seems to be that when he lost his parents, Bruce died inside and he was replaced by the Batman. He became a creature of the night who hid during the day because he couldn't operate in daylight. Daylight, of course, doesn't physically hurt Bruce, but it metaphorically is damaging to Batman because he can't realistically go out in costume and fight crime in broad daylight and because it takes away from the effect of the symbol. 
both Dracula and Batman instill fear in their adversaries, and they use the simple-mindedness of their enemies to manipulate them for their own gain. They create a legend around themselves that becomes confused and exaggerated, heightening people's awareness of them, but diminishing their understanding of them, making people terrified of the very idea of them, and that, too, is a huge advantage. Dracula is actually immortal, but Batman, while just a man, is an idea that may have the same kind of longevity in people's consciousness as Dracula's does. And when Dracula was gone for centuries, he was thought to be just a myth, as Batman very likely would. Because Batman and Dracula have so much in common, the movie extends that to personal interests, having Dracula show an interest even in the girl Bruce is dating. Vicky Vale, voiced by the always talented Tara Strong. While it's a little easy that Dracula, of course calling himself Alucard, goes to Bruce Wayne's party and Vicky is the first girl he runs into, and while the oh-so-common cliché of the hero's girlfriend getting kidnapped sets up the film's ultimate climax, I was relieved that this isn't a love triangle, but rather Dracula searching for a suitable sacrifice to usher in the return of his undead bride. Once he learns more about Vicky, a strong, independent, and socially important woman, as he's admiring her giving a TV news report, I believe his interest in her, and the reveal that she's just a means to an end for him, and not a sudden infatuation because the movie couldn't come up with a more creative idea, was a pleasant surprise. And I love how thoughtful Dracula is, as well as his appreciation for language. When he sees Vicky's last name on television, he says, even her name possesses a mysterious allure. Veil. But despite all these similarities and shared interests, that one difference that completely separates Batman and Dracula is, of course, motivation. What a person really wants tells you everything about them. Dracula is motivated by bloodlust, which is an intrinsically selfish and personal desire. No matter how refined or cultured or civilized he might seem, what drives Dracula is no different than what drives any non-intelligent animal. Hunger. Dracula lives to drink blood. Batman's motivated by the opposite. He lives to prevent blood from being spilled. When his parents were murdered, a darkness consumed him. And when he couldn't bury it, he found a way to use it. While Dracula likes being a monster, Batman, as Christian Bale's version says in Batman Begins, uses his monster in an effort to, I'd say, help stop other children from ever having to find the monster in themselves that he did. Bruce isn't an entirely noble character. There is a degree of madness to him, but a controlled madness. And this leads each to a different attitude and demeanor toward people. Like Dracula, Batman has a sentinel of sorts in Alfred. But unlike the way Dracula mind controls and uses the penguin, Batman and Alfred have a mutual respect for one another. The symbol of Batman is larger than life, but he sees his friend and confidant as his equal. Bruce worries that he and Dracula are the same because of the reputation he's garnered as Batman. When people start disappearing and Dracula starts being sighted, it's blamed on Batman and the police begin a witch hunt for him, somewhat like in Mask of the Phantasm, though I don't think this movie is stealing from that film. As Batman goes up against Dracula, develops a cure for the people he's transformed into vampires, and ultimately manages to destroy Dracula in the end, Batman remembers why he does what he does and rediscovers his humanity. And I appreciate that this is, for the most part communicated to the viewer through Batman's actions rather than having him verbalize it. Dracula calls himself evil incarnate, and Batman is able to kill Dracula, which he does with solar light after luring Dracula into the Batcave, because he realizes this isn't a person, this is a charismatic monster without a soul. He also tries to cure Dracula first, and his antidote fails, proving that he's not even remotely human. When Batman destroys Dracula, he destroys the representation of the other side of that line he tries not to cross. Darkness for the sake of itself. Killing because it's easy. 
Dracula believes the world revolves around him, uses everyone he comes in contact with for his own terrible purposes, while Batman cured his worst enemy of vampirism after it ate him up inside that he might have been responsible for his death. And while it's a little heavy-handed, I suppose, the goodness in Batman is illustrated visually when Batman is bathed in the light that kills Dracula. So, perhaps a lot of this is a little on the nose, and it sounds kind of cheesy when you spell it all out like this. The movie is certainly more than just a comparison-contrast exercise between Batman and Dracula. Dracula proves to be a great, worthy adversary for Batman, and they have a couple of very powerful and entertaining scenes together. There aren't very many Batman villains who can get away with saying things like, Next time, we do not part until maggots feed upon your flesh. Dracula is voiced, by the way, by Peter Stormare, who played the devil in Constantine, and some of the same raspiness comes through his voice that he used in that role. It's a lot of fun seeing a crossover like this between two major cultural icons, and the movie plays that up just like it should. While this isn't Dracula's movie, he sure acts like it is. Dracula's so vain, he probably thinks this movie's about him. And I like that by the end, that vanity is his downfall. He thinks he's invincible because he's Dracula, and he's too smart to be killed by the things that he really isn't invincible to, so he lets his guard down and falls for Batman's trap. But there are a number of elements that don't quite add up. First, there's definitely some Batman-can-do-it-because-he's-Batman logic going on. Batman can synthesize an antidote for vampirism in a pretty short amount of time, and since we aren't told very much about what he's doing other than seeing him look into microscopes and pouring things into tubes, he's either a Reed Richards-level scientist or that irritating MacGuffin of Batman's rich and he has cool toys is creeping in from the TV show a bit. And this is maybe something that just couldn't be avoided. We've got a pretty credible Dracula in a kid's movie where no one's allowed to die. Surprisingly, that doesn't detract too much from the ambiance. The stakes are high enough. Because all the vampires instantly turn other people into vampires as soon as they bite them, this thing would turn into an epidemic pretty quickly. The vampires are frightening enough, and the movie doesn't skimp on the creepy factor. This is handled about as well as can be expected. The problem is... It makes the vampires look more like zombies, especially since they're all lumbering and they groan a lot. And it makes Dracula's lore entirely implausible. If vampires have to feed as often as Joker seems to, a vampire epidemic back in Dracula's days seems likely, and if that had happened, it would be far less likely to fall into historical obscurity and be passed down as legend. It tries to come off at the end as clever for having all the vampires return to their human selves with, conveniently, no memories of being vampires, and it acts like that explains why no one can ever be sure if vampires are real. But we aren't told that vampires were ever cured prior to Batman's antidote, and if they were, how? There's some inconsistency in how the vampires are handled, too. Why is Joker the only one who completely retains his personality and continues talking a lot? Perhaps the idea is that vampirism makes you mad, and the Joker already is, so there's not much of a difference, but that idea isn't explored or addressed, so it comes off more like he gets to keep his personality because he's a familiar character. And while I generally like Batman's characterization here, there are a couple of weird contradictions. It seems strange to me that while brooding about thinking he's responsible for the Joker's death, Bruce is starting to date Vicki Vale. Alfred has that normal Alfred line where he tells Bruce it's about time he started seriously pursuing romantic interests. And to think, I was beginning to think you preferred the company of arch rogues. 
this seems like another of those, this is a movie, so these important character progression things need to happen, where I would expect Bruce to be too preoccupied with this perceived degeneration of his own humanity to allow himself the pleasure of getting serious with a woman. It's also odd that while the rest of the city seems reluctant to believe in the possibility of real vampires, Bruce and Alfred buy that Dracula is the real Dracula right away as soon as Bruce figures out Alucard is Dracula spelled backward. Yep, only the world's greatest detective could figure that one out. They don't even question it or seem at all surprised by it. It's like, okay, that guy's Dracula. Now what do we do? And come to think of it, what's Dracula's tomb doing in Gotham? Because this is classic Dracula, he really does come from Transylvania and thinks that's where he is when he's awakened, but we aren't given any clues at all as to how the heck he got here. All in all, I thought this one was a nice surprise. Unexpectedly thoughtful, dripping with atmosphere, as the Joker says when he enters Dracula's crypt, and it skillfully balances cartoon humor with genuinely morbid ideas. I'm going to give the Batman vs. Dracula a 3 out of 4. And next week, requested Rewind United on the sci-fi thriller Dark City. Stay tuned.